praying about, and I hope you're continuing to pray. It begins uh, March 29th, and uh, we're hoping many, many people come. Its design is for those of us who know the Lord to be reinvigorated and re-stimulated and re-encouraged. And then for those who do not yet know the Lord, we're hoping many in that category will come and hear and believe. And when they make decisions to accept the Lord, uh, we need you to be decision counselors. And a number of you have already signed up, and we're grateful to you. If you've not signed up but are interested in helping out, you don't have to sign up. Just come uh, today to a training session I'm going to tell you about. Uh, everyone will be equipped to sit across from somebody who's just made a decision to accept the Lord, and you will be trained in drawing them out just to make sure they understand the significance of what they have just done. And there'll be your staff will be standing by in case there are any tricky situations for which you would like some assistance. So if you would like to help out, you do not have to commit to every night during the week, although we'll take you if you can. Uh, we're hoping we get enough counselors so that for those who can't be there every night, we can make up with others. So uh, we have two training times, and they're identical. So the first is today at 3 o'clock in this wing, room 1102. That's the room when you come in. It's Dr. Jim Hastings' Bible study room. And if you come at 3 o'clock just as you are, uh, one of our members, Joe Simmons, is, who's trained thousands of people in the past to uh, sit across from an, a new believer and help them in their decision. He'll do the training. We have a little brochure we're going to show you how to use, and that's what you'll use uh, during Resurrection Awakening. So it's at 3 o'clock today. Again, you don't have to sign up. Uh, you can just come. If you want to sign up, then Richard has a clipboard which is in the back of the room, and you could surely do that. If you can't make it today, a duplicate training session will be Wednesday night after the service at uh, 7.30, same location, room 1102 in this wing, Dr. Jim Hastings' uh, room. Again, you don't have to sign up. Now, if you are a deacon here and are uh, uh, going to help, and I, I sure hope you're willing to do that, then you'll need to come to today's training session because there's a deacon's meeting after the service this Wednesday night. That's important, obviously, for deacons to attend. And so we'd be pleased to have you come to the training session today at 3 in lieu of the one uh, Wednesday night. Does anyone have any questions about what I just said? Uh, men and women, uh, everybody is needed and necessary, and we'd like to have a few hundred volunteers to do this. Do you have any questions about that or about the, oh, yes, sir. Hey, Jack, how are you? And Martha. Um, Jack, we will take you uh, because you are prior military and we trust prior military folks depending on what branch of the service. <laughs> No, sir, you, you come on board, absolutely, you come. And many of the people we hope who we're going to be counseling with are not members of the church, so that's just, just fine. Martha, great to see you. Martha had a little vacation 
in the hospital and uh, is doing much better. Wonderful to see you. Jack and Martha are sitting very close together. Uh, they like each other. Let me, what could I tell you? So, Speaking of liking each other, see this couple right here? I have known them for years and years, Gail and John, and they are getting married in April. Before you know it, there they are. So let's go around the room and all the married couples share one reason why they should not do this. Okay, who would like... <laughs> I knew Gail, Gail, I think I knew you before John. We met in Friendswood at a Bible study at a friend's house a million years... Come on! Did they have the Bible in those days? Gail, tw 24 years ago? Her daughter, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I didn't realize you were that old, Gail. And then John, we've gone to Israel a couple times. Had a wonderful experience over there. Hope we get to do it again. You should go on your honeymoon. Guess who proposed to, to Gail in Israel? John did. Along the... Gail, don't tell me what to do. Save it for him. <laughs> Gail is the reason why God wrote women should not speak in church. Yeah. Her picture's right by that verse. So we were along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and we had a little time of uh, renewal of wedding vows, and um, uh, unattached or single people renewed their vows of commitment to their heavenly husband, uh, the Lord Jesus, and then John was not paying attention at all. He was distracted, <laughs> took Gail aside, and... It was a little chapel, a little church over there. That's exactly right. And uh, it commemorates an event in Peter. What was it in Peter's life? Oh, that was it. Peter, do you love me? That <laughs> No, I forgot. And that's where, and then he came out. And uh, Gail didn't uh, just jump at this opportunity. She needed some persuasion. And uh, finally, uh, she relented. And uh, there, there they were. And they had many fights on the trip, as I recall, in preparation for marriage. <laughs> so that's John and Gail. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. What else is new here? Great to see everyone. There's Miss Doris. Uh, uh, Brother Ed went home to be with the Lord just uh, two weeks. About two weeks ago, rather suddenly. Uh, the, just a wonderful person. These are the parents of Kelly Wills, who is the wife of John Wills, who served with us for many years and now is executive pastor, Heights Baptist in Richardson, been helping Miss Doris quite a bit. You know, John, he's just, what a, what a servant heart he has. You, you got a good one there, and we need to be praying for Miss Doris. This is her second time back since Brother Ed passed, and uh, her almost last comments had to do with his shoes. Apparently, she felt like he was wearing a good pair of shoes to church on one day. He apparently didn't normally wear uh, good-looking shoes, I guess. So, <laughs> they were, that's right. He was comfortable. 
We love you, and I know this is a challenging time, and we have to remember to pray for you. Well, folks, we are in Genesis uh, chapter 41, and I, uh, I'm pained to do this, but I have to thank my brother Chuck <laughs> for giving me finally a nice passage of Scripture. It's not very controversial. It's not about women's roles or anything like that. You know how he is. He usually times it. So I get stuck with those no-win passages of Scripture. But today, this is a good one. And so I'm really beginning to think that maybe Brother Chuck had a uh, conversion experience. You know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to put it together. Okay, folks, here we go. Genesis 41 now. So that's a time indicator. It implies something has preceded. Now... After what has preceded took place, now it happened at the end of two full years. Pharaoh had a dream. Two full years of what? Well, it's Joseph's imprisonment. And you know the circumstances. His brothers sold him away into bondage. He serves with an official in Pharaoh's court. The man Potiphar, his wife, took a liking to Joseph. Joseph did the honorable thing, uh, running away. She was offended and accused him of assaulting her. He ends up in prison. Um, and now it says two full years. I'll bet you Joseph could have told you that. I bet he could have told you minutes and seconds. Think about it. You're in a foreign land, falsely accused, betrayed by family members. You have no hope of ever getting out. I'll bet you he was cognizant of every moment of time, but so too was God. And that's why God, under inspiration, had Moses put down here at the end of two full years. Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. You know, Joseph really is going to have to be patient, isn't he? He doesn't know when he's going to get out, even if. He's probably asking the questions we would ask, why and how long. Those are the two questions we ask all the time when things are tough. Why and how long? We almost never get satisfying answers, but we ask those questions of God anyway. I wonder if Joseph heard God saying, Joseph, just be patient you ever heard God say something like that? Well, that's a tough one. Just be patient. Just wait. Oh, my goodness. The discipline of waiting when we're in a tough situation is very, very difficult. If God said, just go to war, we would more easily, readily do that. Just go to work. We could accept that. But when God says, just wait, oh, my goodness, that's a tough one. You know what someone said? Uh, God orders not only our steps, but also our stops. This is a stop. Joseph might have seen it to be at times to be an unfortunate turn of events, but there's no such thing uh, for God uses all things for good to those who love him, the ones who are called according to his purpose. Where is that verse from? Yeah, Romans 8, 28. So this is an Old Testament illustration of a New Testament principle. And what looks like an unfortunate turn of events is not unfortunate whatsoever. God knows exactly what he's up to and what he's doing. So here's what happens in verse 2. Lo, from the Nile, 
There came up uh, seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. That's a typical Egyptian scene. You can see it along the Nile even today. Cows would be there. They would wade out into the water somewhat, both to uh, respond to the heat of the day and also the flies. And then they would come up on shore and they would graze. It's a very typical Egyptian scene. So verse 3, behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt. They stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed the second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. And then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now it came about in the morning, his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And folks, they had plenty uh, smart people and also sorcerers. Folks who apparently had demonstrated an ability prior to this to interpret dreams. By whose empowerment? Well, probably not the one true God. Satan has the capacity to do these things as well. That's why he's called the deceiver. Anyway, Pharaoh calls upon them, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. I must tell you, I find that unusual. Because the dreams Pharaoh had, uh, frankly, are not that complicated. They make use of symbols very common in Egyptian uh, thinking symbols that every wise man would have been quite familiar with. For instance, the cow was a symbol of the Egyptian goddess Isis, who was the goddess of the all-sustaining earth. Isn't it interesting? Her, her, Isis, we, we're becoming sadly familiar with the term today, aren't we, Isis? Um, uh, same name, same author, <laughs> the same one who gave... Isis, way back there in Egypt, I think, gave rise to Isis today, prince of darkness. Anyway, and, and, and so Isis, you know, this symbolized by a cow, was familiar to the Egyptians. And then the Nile. Everybody knew the Nile was the, thought to be the source of uh, fertility for all the land. So you wonder why they couldn't have come up, at least with a reasonable approximation of what this dream means. I think the reason why they failed at it is that God kept them from understanding. Why? Because the correct interpretation of the dream was reserved for Joseph and Joseph alone. And so verse 9, the chief cupbearer, now he enters the scene again. There were two characters, a baker and a cupbearer. They were in jail with Joseph, and Joseph correctly interpreted their dreams. Joseph said, hey, will you remember me, cupbearer, when you get out? Cupbearer said, sure. Well, we know it's at least two years, and the cupbearer didn't keep his word. But now the cupbearer is hearing all this stuff. He speaks up. The chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants. He put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard. That's Potiphar. Both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night. He and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth, that's Joseph, was 
with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard. We related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one, he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came about that just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Whoa, that's unbelievable. Well, you know, one minute you're in jail, the next minute you're getting an audience with the uh, leader of probably the greatest uh, empire on earth at the time. Joseph's cleaning himself up. Uh, I mean, not just for hygiene purposes. There was something else here. You know, the Egyptians were repulsed by long facial hair and, and um, lots of hair up here. Uh, they, they liked a clean-cut appearance and shaved, shaved heads. They only wore beards as a sign of mourning. But it was entirely different for the Hebrews. For the Hebrews, a beard was a sign of wisdom and respect. So you have a clash of cultures here. Joseph is kind of a smart guy here, so he decides to get the hairdo that would, you know, uh, be appropriate for an audience with the king of Egypt. So he shaves. Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 15, I had a dream. No one can interpret it. I've heard it said about you. When you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I want to ask you a question. What would you say in response at this point? I mean, just try to get in touch with who you are and all honesty. Listen. You've been imprisoned, falsely accused of a sexual assault. You didn't do it. Nobody's on your side. You're in a foreign country. This is not your land. Uh, your family's not there to stick up for you. In fact, they're part of the root of this particular problem. You have no hope of getting out. The cupbearer who's supposed to come through for you, it's been two full years, he hasn't apparently said a word up until now. You're just a Hebrew nothing. You get an audience with the most powerful man in Egypt. He's seated on his probably marble throne. He's wearing two crowns as a symbol of his uh, rulership over both uh, upper and lower Egypt. Sandals probably gold. He's bedecked in Egyptian finery. His servants and staff are standing all around him. He says to you, I hear you can interpret dreams. Wouldn't you be tempted to say, you betcha. It's just a little something I do. <laughs> Apparently, it's a challenge for your boys. Piece of cake for me. Yeah, I'm your dream interpreter, all right. Yeah, I've been spending some time in one of your fine prisons. But it's kind of not making good use of what I can do. I can see into things. I can listen to me. Joseph wants to get out of jail. He doesn't want to jeopardize his freedom, so he'd be tempted to say something like that. Yet, he surprisingly doesn't. Verse 16, Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Oh, my goodness. Pharaoh was considered to be God. This Hebrew slave is speaking to this pretender to the throne of the one true God unashamed, unabashed, unafraid, takes no credit. God is behind this. I can't pull this off. He risks his personal freedom. And I wonder, how do you get to be like that? Um, it's called the preparation of the pit. Two years in jail, at least two years in jail, has really changed him, his character. And that's what God's about, honing our character. And sometimes the pits 
of life are better environments in which for us to develop a mature and godly character than when things are going smoothly. This accounts for why even believers uh, experience adversity. If God is good, why do we go through all this stuff? Because he's so good. He wants to shape us up, mold us, make us to be more like him. He wants to mature our character. So now you have someone witnessing about the true God in the presence of someone considering himself to be God. In verse 17, Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. Um, In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. Behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. And lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor, ugly, gaunt, such as I'd never seen for ugliness in all of Egypt. The lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they devoured them, it couldn't be detected that they had devoured them. They were just as ugly as before. Uh, This is interesting. Uh, This is a repetition of what we already read. It's an account of uh, Pharaoh's dream. You say, well, what in the world? Why is it repeated twice? Uh, The answer is, I, I have no idea. But I do know this. There's no fat in the Bible. Nothing's extraneous. Everything's important. Everything's profitable. We may not see it initially, uh, but it is. Now, one new uh, ingredient that's given in this second account of the dream is, you see where it says that the ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows, yet, verse 21, when they finished eating them, it couldn't be detected that they did so? I mean, you get skinny cows eating big old fat cows. Surely you're going to see, whoa, more, more. The cow's going to say, I, I am utterly filled up. So that's kind of a joke because cows, they have udders. And so uh, you're going to see, you say, oh, my goodness, you need some treadmill time, cow. But this says not, I mean, holy Toledo, this is a rather supernatural kind of event. So that little insight is given in the second account, not given in the first So then uh, Pharaoh awoke. Verse 22, I saw also in my dream, behold, seven ears, full and good. They came up on a single stalk, and uh, lo, seven ears, withered, thin, scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now, Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. And the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind shall be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come. And all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine. For it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God. God will quickly bring it about. And now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land. Let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. And then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. 
And let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there's no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. How do you go from one minute being imprisoned to the next minute being appointed second to none other than Pharaoh? How in the world is that? That's something I like to call the divine surprise. You see him in the Bible, but we can see him in our lives as well. Please ask God for the divine surprise during our resurrection awakening week. What does that mean? It means fruit beyond anything we could take credit for. That's what it means. That God would just intervene in such fashion that at the end we look back and say, look what God has done. This is a divine surprise. And from a, from a personal point of view, you're Joseph. You're going from bonds to uh, bounty in a matter of time. Once again, how does your character handle this? We're all prone to human pride. My goodness. How, how, how is God going to keep... Jacob in check. Well, folks, it's called the preparation of the pit. Once again, God first sent Joseph to school before Joseph got this promotion. But the school was not Bible college or seminary or business school. Not that those things are wrong. The school was jail. That made perhaps a prideful guy a little more humble. Do, do you remember when he had his dream and he told his brothers, you know, God's going to make me great and all that? I wonder if there was a little uh, boastfulness there. But now he's changed entirely. All it took is a prison sentence. That's the school. Now, Joseph had leadership gifts. Leadership means influence. He had the capacity to influence people. He had administrative gifts. This plan he suggests to Pharaoh is quite brilliant, don't you think? Pharaoh thought so. But here's the thing. Everyone here has talents and gifts. The trick is not to let your talents and gifts take you to a place where your character cannot sustain you. Mm. When there's a discrepancy between gifts and character, we have crisis. You see it all the time. You see gifted people, leaders in the Christian life, promoted to high positions of notoriety, popularity, fame, whose characters can't keep them in that role. The characters, they haven't had enough time in the pit They've been graduated up the ranks a little too quickly. I remember when I was a new Christian, uh, I, I served with a group called the Navigators. And uh, it was a ministry to military folks. In my case, it was in Germany. And uh, I was with them about three years. And uh, m mostly what I did at Navigator Functions, to be honest, was to set up chairs, kind of like this, make sure they were neatly aligned, sweep the floor, set up chairs. That was my, my deal. I got to be honest with you, I used to wonder, man, I'm three years into this. I could do some stuff beyond just setting up chairs. What's up with these people? Apparently, they had a uh, growth uh, strategy that I knew not of. I, I didn't get it. After three years, one of the navigator leaders to whom I uh, was to submit 
said, uh, we want you to share your testimony at an upcoming conference to soldiers in uh, Switzerland. We're going to take them to Switzerland. It's kind of a ski thing. And then we're going to, you know, it's going to be a conference. We want you to share your testimony. Three minutes. That's it. Three minutes. And then was, we, we learned how to share our testimony within three minutes. Sometimes you've got to be quick about it. Uh, boy, have I fallen from that, haven't I? <laughs> I just said what you are thinking. So... Everybody had three minutes. So I did my deal, and it was very well received. I must tell you, I'm not lying. It was just very well received. And then the conference speaker got up and shared. Now, while I was sitting there, I was thinking, you know, I did good. You know, I, I shared my testimony. I'm, I, I did really good. People said I was good. I, I think I could do as good as that guy who's got, you know, like 45 minutes. What's up? I mean, he's developing a passage of Scripture. It's from the Old Testament. Good night. He's a Gentile. I mean, this is my home territory. What's up? What's up? So I'm sitting there. I was, I was you know what that demonstrated? Uh, my gifts exceeded my character, didn't they? Well, the Navs knew that. Therefore, they didn't allow me to do anything but share my testimony after three years. Go back to setting up chairs until uh, they felt like I had sufficient growth opportunity. So the Bible says pride goes before a fall, doesn't it? That's why you want to be really careful about uh, graduating Young believers too quickly, even if they're very gifted. This happens a lot with personalities, you know, athletes and people like that. When we find out they come to know the Lord, man, we put them on a speaking tour right away. Ooh, it could be a real stumbling block for them. Better to, if they're really serious, better to have them set up chairs for a while, test out the character. Well, God tested out and honed down Joseph's character. So even though one minute in jail, the next moment he's second in command, God knew he... His character could keep him where his, his gifts brought him. So verse 42, Pharaoh took off his signet ring. See, these are all the confirmation of authority delegated from Pharaoh to him. Took off his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, put the gold necklace around his neck, made him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Wow. What a promotion he got. Then Pharaoh named him, verse 45, Joseph, named Joseph Zephinath Paniah. You know what that means? Nobody does. <laughs> we just can't figure out what that means, I'm telling you. Can I tell you something? Uh, my peeps, uh, uh, Jewish scholars, are prone to uh, miss the forest for the trees. Instead of looking to the plain meaning of the text they're studying, they take it apart. They analyze it out of existence. They read things into it. By the way, that's called eisegesis. Eisegesis. Uh, it's a Greek word. It means putting things into the Bible. <laughs> Exegesis means lifting them out. Exegesis. So when we talk about an exegete is someone who studies the, what the text says and lifts it out and brings it home to the rest of us. An eisegete is someone who looks to Scripture, then speculates and puts, reads stuff back into it. So my people are uh, infamous for eisegetes. I'll give you an example. Nobody knows what this assigned Egyptian name really means, Zephinath Paniah, but my people say, no, here's the deal. They say each letter in Joseph's 
newly given Egyptian name means something. So linking them all together, they say Joseph's new name was seer, redeemer, prophet, supporter, interpreter of dreams, clever, discreet, wise one. Man, it'd take you forever to call that boy to dinner. <laughs> Look, you say, what's the harm in that anyway? The harm is in suggesting an approach to the Bible that is just not right. Folks, you can't be speculating about that. Come on. You, the Bible doesn't say a thing about it. Therefore, we, should, it's, we, we just don't know exactly what the name means. So my people read, by the way, this happens all the time, and it, it gets us. I, I, I heard someone say the other day, a, a person of notoriety, um, we Christians today are, uh, are, are probably ones who lack discernment more than any other group of Christians in any age. Biblical discernment. Wow, that's dangerous. Let me give you some evidence of it. Remember years ago, the book, The Bible Codes, written by a fellow named Michael Drosnin, an unsaved Jewish mathematician, Bible codes. He discovered, uh, well, he didn't discover this. Every Hebrew and Greek letter has a numerical equivalent. That's accurate. He uh, decided when you look to the numerical equivalents of the Hebrew and Greek words, you can see numbers that total up to the names of uh, kings, leaders, and even the Antichrist. So he, he found in Scripture, he said, uh, the secrets to, you know, identity of People were guessing at. Many people here, we carry the book around. Have you read this? Have you read this? They'd say. Well, at the time, I didn't read it. <clears throat> uh, and I'll tell you why. I thought, tell me if this makes sense. How could it be that the God of all grace, who did not withhold his only begotten son from one such as you and I, how could it be that he who did not spare his only son, his best, how could it be that he would withhold from us insights into his word only to reveal them to an unsaved Jewish mathematician. Does that make sense to you? Especially since the father we serve is not a God of secrets, mysteries, and hiddenness. He's a God of revelation, not just the last book of the Bible called the book of Revelation, all 66 books reveal the mind, the heart, the will, the ways, the expectations of God. No loving parent withholds that which is necessary for a child to know. They reveal them. Our loving father reveals these things. So that book, which took the Christian world by storm, is eisegesis. It's just like what uh, Jewish scholars and commentators have done throughout the millennia and down to this very day. Fanciful. I would be careful about books that have in the title, now this is a little bit uh, uh, dramatic, but uh, just be careful of books that have in the title the word hidden or secrets or mystery. Now, you don't have to dismiss it out of hand, but, but a lot of books that carry that kind of deal cater to the Christian community um, by, by way of saying, um, 
though there have been thousands of years of exegesis of Scripture, still uh, I have discovered uh, an otherwise secret mystery hidden from common Christian view. God has chosen to reveal it to me. I've written it down in this book that now you've made a bestseller. I'd be really careful about that kind of stuff. Highly, look, uh, uh, Pastor John Hagee has written the book about the four blood moons. A movie's coming out. My guess is many of you will go see it. It's a movie uh, based on the book, The Four Blood Moons. It is an atmospheric phenomenon that's real and true. The Four Blood Moons. It sounds a little gory, but it's when the moon is dark and has a reddish kind of color. Now, well, what is troublesome is not the recognition of this uh, uh, event. What's troubling is what uh, Pastor Hagee is reading into it. Be careful. Highly speculative. Now, I'm going to tell you something. He's going to win. I'll tell you why. Because he speaks about the blood moons as um, a, uh, an era of time, not as the day or something like that. And in this era of time, characterized by the four blood moons, uh, very significant things are going to happen worldwide. And I'll tell you why he's going to win. They're always happening. <laughs> significant things happen all the time. The world is so small. I know what's happening in Japan. Here from Pearland, Texas. And so, so, that's just the world. So, so you got to be real. I, mean, I must tell you, folks, uh, we're increasingly losing credibility because we're coming up with all this fanciful stuff that uh, uh, doesn't come to pass. And when it doesn't come to pass, we continue to lose credibility. Now, I, I wish we just did what was done in the old days. If someone has a prediction or prophecy of something that doesn't come to be, you just stone them. <laughs> see, that would be like a deterrent to speculation. You see what I mean? You know what's happening today along the same lines? Uh, it, it's not new, but it's really picking up steam. Uh, everyone's going to heaven and coming back to tell about it. Just about everyone who's anyone. <clears throat> Little kids are going to heaven, you know. They're in an accident. They die. Uh, God takes them to heaven and sends them back to tell us about it. No, he doesn't. The scriptures are pretty clear about that. No one in heaven can come back to tell us a thing about it. It's a chasm you cannot cross. Second, if the so-called reports of heaven are not consistent with what the Bible says about heaven, they didn't get that experience from God. So the one young boy, what's his name? Burpo? Todd Burpo? They wrote, his dad helped him write a book, movie. You probably saw it. Heaven is for real. You probably went to see it. He saw people with wings in heaven. Really? Show me that in the Bible. Why would God, the God of heaven, show this little kid uh, uh, an image that is absolutely contrary to what scriptures say about heaven? On and on and on and on. Another young kid wrote a book about heaven. His last name, very appropriately, is Malarkey. <laughs> I'm not lying to you. Just admitted recently that what he said was fraudulent. He and his father made it up to get attention and money. Now, I didn't say every one of these reports is malarkey. I did not say that. Here's what I am saying. Could God do these things? Yes. We're talking about dreams here. 
the last chapter was about dreams. This chapter is about dreams. Brother Chuck made comments, which I agree with, last week uh, about dreams. Let me just say them again. Uh, God can speak through dreams. Are you kidding me? I mean, here it is in the Bible. And yet the frequency with which God chooses that vehicle as a means of communication, any thinking person will admit, is much less than it was in these early days. Please tell me, what is the difference between this day, what we're reading about in Genesis, and the day we live in now? What is the one thing that's different? The Bible. It, what's called canon. Canon sounds like a terrible word, but it means yardstick. The, the, the collection of authentic, inspired scripture was not completed in this day. And when it came to be completed, do you know what God said? You have a more sure testimony than even when you saw the Lord transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. What you sense with your eyes is less sure than what you're reading in this book. That's what God said. So one of the big differences when God chose dreams very frequently in this day as a means of communication, they didn't have the complete scripture. Now, am I saying God can't speak through dreams today? I'm not, not at all. I'm not putting God in a box. I'm not going to limit God except to the extent that God limits himself. His primary means of communication is inscripturated truth, not dreams and visions. So I want to tell you something about dreams and visions. Uh, if someone tells me they've had a dream, <clears throat> I listen respectfully. I say, thank you for sharing that. And I move on. I'll tell you why. I can't verify it, nor can I dismiss it. That's the point. Why can't I? A dream is a private, subjective experience. That's why. You weren't there, only the dreamer. I can't verify it. The only thing I can verify, the only thing objective, the only shared means of communication we have is the Bible. Hence, we're reading Genesis 41. I might have said something you say, Stuart, I, agree, I disagree with what you said about verse 3. Yes, we can do that. We have a discussion. But I can't tell you your dream didn't happen. Your dream did happen. So if you're making a big deal of your dreams, I can't. I can't make a big deal out of any subjective experience you or I have because it's non-verifiable. That's why God's given us objective revelation. That's scripture. Well, what then is the purpose of dreams? Well, there's lots of purposes. But can I tell you something? One is that dreams are simply a continuation of our state of being during the day. Let me tell you something. When you go to sleep at night, is your mind, is your mind turned off? No. If your mind is turned off when you're sleeping at night, you're not sleeping. That's called death. You are brain dead. So your body may be tired, but the mind keeps going. So what does that mean? There's a continuum between our daily experience and our nighttime experience. It's, it's just not separated that way. So generally, what our life experiences are by day oftentimes come through in dreams at night. Listen, I had a dream last night. I'm lying. To, I'm not lying. This is actually true. Weird, but true. Um, 
I was in an office-like setting with three or four other ministers. Brother John was there on a phone call. He was speaking to a man lamenting the fact that his wife was overusing their credit card. I'm not kidding you. And Brother John was listening and giving counsel. Then I felt a little ashamed because, in the dream because I was listening in on his conversation. It wasn't meant for me. He finishes the phone call, and I could see he was uh, preoccupied thinking about the conversation. And he says to me, there's others in the room, he says, Stuart, can you take those things off the wall? What was on the wall were Christmas decorations. I said, would you like me to take them all off? He said, yeah, we're past Christmas. Okay, yeah. So before I did it, I took off my jacket, um, and, but there was dust on it. So I, I started to dust off my jacket, and John Mark was in the room, and he said, Stuart, could you do that outside? And I said, oh, yeah. I didn't realize there was that much dust on it. <laughs> and then I woke up. So what's up? It was a very real thing. Can you, do you notice the elements in it are on a continuum, the same elements in my waking state? I know a brother John. He tells me to do stuff I don't want to do. Uh, let's just face it. John Mark is a pain. You know, I mean, nothing is, what's, what's, I, I don't understand all of the things. And stuff. I could read into it if you want. I could like make up stuff if you want but you can't verify it or anything like that. It's just on the same continuum. Now, I didn't say God can't do supernatural things in dreams. I'm just saying he typically doesn't. What he typically does is to illuminate us to Scripture. I would be very, very careful about an emphasis on dreams and visions. It's non-verifiable. And God doesn't... If you come to me and you say, uh, you say, Stuart, God gave me a dream and he told me to tell you, you need to leave Sagemont immediately and uh, go get a job with Richard over there at the fire department. Well, I, mean, I could be, I suppose, you know, and it would be if Brother John keeps telling me to take up off the decoration. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking for another job for crying out loud. <clears throat> uh, you know, but, but, uh, but, but I'm going to look to you and I'm going to say, thank you for sharing that, but I am not going to change the direction of my life on the basis of what you said. Am I saying that you didn't hear from God? No, I can't say that. But I also can't say you did. It's non-verifiable. I would be careful. Be careful. So there's all this stuff coming out today, movies, this and that. I've been to heaven. By the way, do you know non-believers report the same visits to heaven? Near-death experiences? And I don't want to reduce that which is spiritual to plain and mundane materialistic truths, but there is a truth. When you're experiencing a medical trauma, a loving God, whether you're a believer or not, um, allows for a rush of brain chemicals, neurotransmitters, to just kick into gear to sort of help you get through the trauma. And so better for you to see light and hear music than to be thinking, oh my goodness, that's my arm over there. <laughs> so that's a kind of a physiological thing which is common to humankind. And to write books about that as if you actually went you may have, but once again, but you just as well may not have.
And so for those of us to invest our time and money and interest in those kinds of non-verifiables makes no sense when you have verifiable scripture here. What if someone says, I had a dream and I can back it up by scripture? No, 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 that's not the way it works. You don't have a dream and then find scripture to come alongside. <laughs> because then what you're doing is, sub- is suggesting a subordinate role to scripture. <laughs> you don't have an, a, a personal subjective experience and then find verses that support it. No, 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 no. Everything leads from scripture as the primary vehicle, not secondary, not subordinate. Okay, I think I've said enough to offend some. Okay, now I want to show you something here. we got a few minutes. Um, so, verse 45, Joseph has this name, and uh, Pharaoh gives him uh, a woman, a Senath. She's the daughter of Potipharah, not Potiphar. This is a different one. This Potipharah is a priest of On. On later comes to be known as Heliopolis. It's about eight miles north of present-day Cairo. So, Joseph gets an Egyptian woman named Asenath as his wife. Verse 46, uh, Joseph's 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He went out from the presence of Pharaoh, went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, land brought forth abundantly, and so he gathered all the food uh, during these years, and he placed them in cities. And uh, Joseph, verse 49, stored up the grain in great abundance. And, uh, verse 50, before the year of famine, two sons were born to him, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore him. Joseph named the first one Manasha, or Manasseh, for he said, God made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And he named the second Ephraim, for he said, God's made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Look how Joseph is remembering the true God through all this time. He names his two sons, born through his Egyptian wife, Manasseh, which means to forget, and Ephraim, which means to be fruitful. And that's just a paradigm for us, isn't it? When God comes into our life, he makes all things new. He casts all our past sins and degradation, all the rest, behind his back so that we can be fruitful. We are, our life experience is characterized by these names, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now I want to point out something to you. Uh, Manasseh and Ephraim are, should be familiar names to you because they're uh, names of two of the tribes of Israel. Now here's what's interesting. Uh, these two leaders of the two tribes of Israel, Manasseh and Ephraim, were produced from the relationship between a Hebrew father and an Egyptian non-Jewish mother. Yet they're very much considered to be Jews, aren't they, down to this very day? But if you ask rabbis, what is a Jew? The rabbi today will say a Jew is someone whose mother was Jewish. Mother. So they trace Jewishness through the mother. But that can't be right, because here the mother is a non-Jew, and yet no rabbi in his right mind would deny Manasseh and Ephraim to be Jews. So what's up? It's another example of where the rabbis distort scripture. What can I tell you? Man, I am just attacking everyone. (laughs) It just occurred to me. I'm just, what is up, man? Guess my wife didn't give me a good breakfast. Oh, no, now I'm attacking her. (laughs) And later she shall attack me. So, um, so <laughs> but, but here's something. Um, during the Holocaust, the Nazis uh, killed uh, most of the Jewish men 
but they kept, kept a lot of Jewish women alive for, for sexual purposes. At the end of the war, you get a lot of displaced kids running around trying to match them up with their parents. You can't match them up with their dads because their dads are, done, are, are gone. So it was easier to match them up with their moms. And that's where the notion of tracing Jewishness through the mom's line came to be. Because in the Bible, you cannot show me one genealogy that goes through the mother's line. Not one. I defy you. They're called patrilineal through the father's line, not matrilineal through the mother's line. Now, is that a big issue? No. It's just something to share with you. It's just another uh, thing that the rabbis assert that thinking Jewish people don't think about and just defer to the rabbis. Okay, now verse 53. When seven years of plenty came to an end, seven years of famine began, just as Joseph said, then was famine in the land, all of Egypt. When all the people of uh, the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Some people, I'm one of them, say that the life of Joseph is a foreshadowing of the life of Jesus. It's called a type, a type. doesn't mean this is Jesus. It means a foreshadowing. It gives us a hint of the ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. A lot of parallels. Joseph was 30 when he went to Pharaoh. Uh, the Lord Jesus was 30 when he started his public ministry. Pharaoh says to people, go to Joseph. The father says to people, go to Jesus. Pharaoh said, when you're hungry, go to Joseph and he will satisfy your hunger. The father says, when you are spiritually hungry, go to Jesus and he will satisfy your hunger. Joseph first experienced humiliation before exaltation. He was put down into the pit before he was raised up to the position of authority he had in Egypt. So too with the Lord Jesus. He was humiliated. He was crucified, put down, spat upon, laid in the grave. And then up from the grave he arose. So you see with him too, humiliation preceded exaltation. What is God saying? He's saying you can find Jesus in the Old Testament if you have eyes to see. There's nothing new in the New Testament. It's just a whole lot clearer. By the way, this paradigm of humiliation preceding exaltation is the normal Christian life. So if you're wondering why you're going through what you're going through, you're being emptied of self. If you wondered why Christians are being persecuted at a greater rate than ever before across the world, it's because that's the way it is. First the humiliation and then the, the exaltation in God's time. Until then... It is the preparation of the pit, as it was for Joseph. So, too, it will be for us. And thank God for the pit, because if Joseph didn't go through that, didn't have his character developed, and, and, and didn't rise to the position he did in Egypt, he could not have provided food for his own family from the land of Canaan. Ah, what God is doing in our life is so that we can be providing food for those who are hungry. Yes, Don. So Don is talking about a passage from uh, Joel. Uh, it's a good passage. Don is saying, what does it mean when it says in that passage, in that day, old men will uh, dream dreams, young men will, will have visions? Uh, it's a great question. And the, the real uh, issue is, in what day? And that's a matter of discussion for another 
time. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, that's an interesting insight. Also, a great question for, uh, I mean, I'm actually not trying to put it off because I have a response, uh, but uh, we actually are out of time. I didn't do this on purpose. He said, yes, Brother Chuck? I want to know if you have Christmas decorations. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I put up Hanukkah decorations. Uh, Don's question deserves an answer, as does yours, brother, and... Uh, We'll try to provide time. Maybe next week. I, I'm on duty again next week. I'll try to take the first part of the class to give us a little more time. To It's a very good issue, both of you raise. All right, Lord Jesus, thank you for everything. It, Lord, the truth be known, you, you know everything and we don't. <laughs> you are infinite. We are finite and we're disciples, meaning learners. So we're following you. And... Uh, we're not doing so flawlessly. What we see is incomplete. Thank you for showing us clearly, however, what it is you want us to know, and the rest we're just going to have to leave to you. Thank you for Christ in common. Thank you for revealing yourself, Lord Jesus, in manifold ways, even as a type, as a foreshadowing through the life of Joseph. Thank you for enabling us to go to you, to run to you, to satisfy our spiritual hunger. Thank you for being the bread of life. We pray during our resurrection awakening weekend that many, many people will come to sup at your table, finding you to be the satisfaction for their spiritual hunger. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you folks. Lord willing, we'll see you next week. We'll try to look at some collateral passages. <laughs>